0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.
1: When a merchant ship from the Caribbean sailed towards the port of Philadelphia, 1793, there was a strange occurrence. No one was there to receive the ship and no one to unload the cargo. There would be no teamsters to take the cargo around, no warehouses open, no stores to sell the items, all of which didn't matter, since there were no citizens in the cobblestone streets of what was then the nation's capital to purchase anything anyway. People were dying in Philadelphia, and no one knew why. It seemed to start on arch and water streets, near the docks, when a dock worker developed jaundice, turned yellow, and died. Soon many others did, developing a fever and then many other ghastly symptoms. The disease skipped over the wharf and into the neighborhoods, first the ones near the docks, but then all parts of the city. It skipped over houses, attacked families, the weak, the strong, the wealthy, and the poor. Elizabeth Drinker was a Quaker woman who kept a diary and lived in the city throughout this time. August 16th. There has been an unusual amount of funerals here. August 18th. Tis seldom anyone of family comes to stay a night with us, but they bring an account of the death of one of our citizens. August 21st. Eight or ten persons buried out of Water Street, between Race and Arch. Many sick in our neighborhood. August 23rd. A fever prevails in this city, upwards of seventy persons sick. Tis a serious and alarming time. August 30th. The ringing of the bells for the dead is now forbidden. The doors of the houses where infection is are ordered to be marked to prevent any but the necessary from entering. "'September ninth, The inhabitants leave ye city in abundance.'" Indeed they were. The city council was barely meeting. The state assembly could not get a quorum. About half the population fled for the country. On September 10th, President Washington joined them. He seemed to want to stay, though. Here's what he writes to his secretary, Tobias Lear. "'We remained in Philadelphia until the 10th. It was my wish to have continued there longer.'" But as Miss Washington was unwilling to leave me surrounded by the malignant fever which prevailed, I could not think of hazarding her and the children any longer by my continuance in the city. Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State now, flees as well, seven days later. Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, is left in charge. Alexander Hamilton cannot flee because he is stricken with the disease. For those who could flee, it made all the medical sense. disease, of course, was caused by pestilence, Bad air. Stagnant water. Foul odors. Philadelphia was a northern city, but it got as hot as Charleston in the summer. And the water, at low tide, could be swampy. The odor in the wharf was unpleasant. And the blame seemed to be focused on a ship from Santo Domingo, now Dominican Republic and Haiti. A shipment of coffee had rotted on the ship, in transit. And it was left on the Philadelphia docks, rotting, baked in the sun. It seemed to be the source of the poor air, of the pestilence, or so thought Philadelphia's new modern doctor, Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration of Independence. Rush went to work on the disease with Hippocratic and religious zeal. His preferred treatment was purging patients, having them take Calomel, which is essentially mercury chloride. He took their pulse and bled them with lancets. Some felt better. Others died. But he never left the city and kept treating patients. Soon he would have 150 of them. His heroic medicine was now, we know, incorrect. Bleeding which he considers so vital. He always thought that human beings had more blood than they actually do. He considered it so vital that Rush bled himself. It was Benjamin Rush who identified the fever as Yellow Fever. It had hit the city 30 years ago, and now Rush concluded it was back. He engaged in an extensive review of the literature available on Yellow Fever, and he saw a manuscript written in 1744 by a doctor in Virginia. It included autopsy reports. Rush looked at them and he saw that the patients of yellow fever had a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. He attributed it to vascular spasms. That's it, Rush thought. Slow down the patient's cardiovascular system. Purge them. I preferred frequent and small to large bleedings in the beginning of September, but towards the height and close of the epidemic, I saw no inconvenience from the loss of a pint and even 20 ounces of blood at the time. I drew from any person 70 and 80 ounces in five days. And from a few, a much larger quantity. Never before did I experience such a sublime joy as I now felt in contemplating the success of my remedies. It repaid me for all the toils and studies of my life. The majority of the medical community, though, especially the members of the College of Physicians, rejected these kind of treatments, using terms and phrases like murderous or doses fit for a horse to describe what he was doing. One sarcastic writer said of Benjamin Rush's treatments, I verily believe that they have slain more Americans with it than ever Samson slew of the Philistines. While his methods may be questioned, his activities would make him a hero. Ordinary citizens were thanking the streets. It was brave of him, because with some good reason, doctors were fleeing the city. Of scores of doctors trained, maybe eight remained. Rush was one of them. Never left. You know, most people now are aware that you didn't have the germ theory of disease at this time. They didn't understand that there were microorganisms they couldn't see transmitting disease from one person to another. It would be 80 years for that. But still, you have to understand that people did have a basic sense that disease could be contagious. And that was true here. Just because they didn't see viruses and bacteria or know about microorganisms didn't mean that they didn't think maybe it's not so good to be in a dirty place. Or maybe you shouldn't hang around a sick person. Maybe when someone sneezes, that might be bad. They thought all these things. And they very much thought that this fever was contagious from contact. Here's an account of a Philadelphian named Matthew Carey, who would have one of the most vivid accounts of the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. Some of it leading towards the dramatic, you know, talking about a husband who bought a coffin for his wife because she was dying. She recovers, but he dies and is buried in the coffin. Or of the sailor who was found in the middle of the street. A coffin was procured for him. He was put in, and then he started screaming. The sailor wasn't fevered. He was just drunk. Did these stories really happen? Well, they were in Carrie's account. Here's what he says, though, about this fearful time. Many were afraid to allow the barbers or hairdressers to come near them, as instances had occurred of some of them having shaved the dead, and many having engaged as bleeders. Some who carried their caution pretty far. Bought lancets for themselves. Many houses were scarcely a moment in the day free from the smell of gunpowder, burned tobacco, nitre, sprinkled vinegar, all thought to be cures. Some of the churches were almost deserted, others wholly closed. The coffee house was shut up, as was the city library and most of the public offices. Three out of the four daily papers were discontinued, as were some of the others. Many devoted no small portion of their time to purifying, scouring, whitewashing their rooms. Those who ventured outside had handkerchiefs or sponges impregnated with vinegar or camphor as an extract of an evergreen tree. At their noses, others carried pieces of tarred rope in their pockets. This was thought to be a cure, by the way, the tar. There are many people who went to sleep at night with a tarred rope around their neck. There was one boy who almost choked. The corpses of even the most respectable citizens of Philadelphia, even those who had not died of the epidemic, were carried to the grave on the shafts of a chair, and without any sort of ceremony. People uniformly and hastily shifted their course at the sight of a hearse coming towards them. Acquaintances and friends avoided each other in the streets, and only signified their regard by a cold nod. The old custom of shaking hands fell into such general disuse that many shrunk back with airtight at even the offer of a hand. The city that was the capital city of the United States with the seat of government, the Congress, the President, was hobbled. But this was not always the case. Philadelphia was the central city of the Americas. The city most internationals, especially the French, wished to travel to. They didn't have number one songs at the time, but that's something that you could have heard in Philadelphia at the time. And it is a song called The Battle of Stony Point. It was written to celebrate a victory in the Revolutionary War where the Americans captured a British-held fort. This was a proud city, really excited about their place on the planet now as the world's newest nation. Philadelphians believe themselves to be the first people in America in manners as in arts. And like Englishmen, they're at no pains to disguise this opinion. So said a senator from another state who arrived at the nation's capital for his service. Philadelphia had a bustling economy, the nation's largest bank, hundreds of merchants, stores where you could get anything that at least an early American could dream of. A coffee house where one could meet either to talk to friends or ply your trade, elegant taverns, as well as common pubs. It had all the theaters of government, and no city had a better representation in the medical field with some 80-degree physicians and numerous other practitioners who were less skilled. All Philadelphia needed was a little pizzazz, and they were just getting around to that in 1793 a group of investors decided to build a theater suitable for the top acting companies in the world at that time. They sold shares to raise money. $300 get you all the plays you can watch. They raised $30,000 for the new theater, modeled after the Theater Royal in Bath. It was built in Chestnut Street on the corner of 6th Street, right across from Congress. The stage ran a depth of 71 feet and was 30 feet long. Three tiers of boxes could hold 900 people to watch these plays. The theater pit itself could hold 2,000. There were multiple dressing rooms, two green rooms, and for the first time in America, a large and well-stocked wardrobe. There are two different entrances to this new theater. For the theater patients that were going into the pit, and for those going to the boxes above, so they didn't have to be trifled with the rabble. There is another event that demonstrated how Philadelphia was at the center of America's imagination. The site of the nation's first space voyage, in a manner of speaking. Months before this contagion spread, January 1793. A huge crowd assembled in what was normally used as a prison yard to see a sight. These were the ticket holders, the distinguished guests, including President Washington. A far greater crowd gathered on all the surrounding streets. Cannons were firing, counting down to the liftoff. And then sometime between 8 and 9 o'clock it began. The inflation of a large balloon.
2: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times.
1: Philadelphians didn't know anything about ballooning at this time, but they did know hydrogen was flammable. This event could be dangerous. But it was enough of a spectacle to have crowds spilling out of the yard and into the surrounding streets to get a view of a Frenchman, Blanchard, who on behalf of America was going to explore the air. Since Blanchard didn't speak English, and no one knew where he might end up, President Washington considerately gave him a kind of passport A letter, by his own hand, that would introduce the explorer wherever he happened to land. Ten o'clock, Blanchard climbed aboard. Here's what a reporter said about it. When the balloon began to rise, the majestical sight was truly awful and interesting. Indeed, the attention of the multitude was so absorbed that it was a considerable time ere the silence was broke. And then, his balloon rose to the cheers and huzzas of Philadelphia. Blanchard was lifted up past so many church steeples, the highest buildings at the time. As he writes, he turned his eyes towards the immense number of people which covered the open places, the roofs of houses, the steeples, the streets, the roads, and waved a flag. He was getting a view that no one else had ever obtained of Philadelphia, nor would they for some time. His flag on the one side was the tricolor of France, on the other, the new flag of the United States. For a long time I could hear the cries of joy which rent the air, Blanchard wrote. But he had work to do. Three Philadelphia doctors suggested things that he would do. One was Benjamin Rush, and Rush asked him to measure his pulse at the greatest altitude that he reached in the balloon he found that it was 8 beats per minute faster than what it had been at the ground. Another doctor wanted him to test magnetism and if it worked in the air. And it did, but a little bit less. Another doctor wanted him to take six bottles full of fluid, drain them, and get air from up in the sky and hermetically seal the bottles. And he had just completed all of these scientific experiments when he had to land. And his balloon descended in the view of what must have been two very surprised farmers on the other side of the river in New Jersey. Wenchard could speak no English, but luckily had the letter from Washington and a bottle of wine, which helped him along with his new hosts. By seven o'clock, Blanchard was back in the city of Philadelphia, the toast of the town. As a souvenir, he gave Washington his flag. There was a painter, Charles Wilson Peel, who also helped to capture the imagination of the citizens of the city. Not only did he paint great portraits, he had done Washington, did Alexander Hamilton. There was a portrait of Jefferson hanging up in his great gallery. People were sending him animal bones, including some strange bones that they were finding from from some prehistoric creatures in the wilderness in Kentucky and Virginia. And he painted them. But he found that people were more interested in the bones, so he started acquiring more animal bones. And then some species of wildlife, birds, and the like. And he arranged them in his gallery, all to the correct species and taxonomy. The city was a center of science. The city was a center of exploration. From the Diary of Elizabeth Drinker September 14, 1793 The sickness in this city is by no means abated. Tis said that W. Sampson is near his end. That his coffin is bespoke and his grave dug. A common thing now. We've heard this day of the death of W. Anthony, son of Captain Anthony. And one of Vincent M. Pelosi. Fine weather. September 15th. A son of Dr. Thomas Miller was buried this morning. Several sick in Germantown. The report of yesterday concerned W. Sampson proves to be a mistake. He was ill, but is better. September 30th. We have frequently heard that ye sickness abated in the city, but by a letter we understand many near their end, occasioned perhaps by a foggy morning and an increase in heat. October 2nd. Very high wind north. Looking at a list of persons buried... I have met with several names I have not heard of before: Jane Water from the Alms House. Hannah Caldwater, Morris Dickinson, Shoemaker, Elsa Austin. Widow Peters and two children. Enoch Taylor and daughter Abigail Taylor. Charles Smithfield. Nathaniel Bain's wife. Sarah Britton, and etc. October 3rd: A fine, clear morning. Jesse's wife came to see us and informed us of the death of several more persons. October 9th. The gloom continues in our city. Sometimes numbers are abstract, And so, that's why I think some of these stories are interesting to understand what was going on in the city at this time. Because if I just said that 5,000 people perished in the Yellow Fever. That's just a statistic, and it loses all relevance. Now, to put it in perspective, this would be like 2 million people perishing in the Los Angeles metro area. And you can only imagine what horror that would be. Because there were just about 40,000 people living
3: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The disease killed doctors, and one of them was Dr. James Hutchinson, who was leading early opposition to the government of George Washington. He was a Republican, one of the Jeffersonian Republican leaders, perished in the yellow fever there's an interesting story that he's dining with Thomas Jefferson at his house. And the Secretary of State was known to have this great wine cellar. And they were drinking some wines. And he's describing to him about the patients. And he says, look, they start with a pain in the head. And then two to eight days later, they die. The next morning, he wakes up with a headache. Was it Jefferson's wine? No, he knew immediately. It was the fever. Sends for the doctor. They purge him. He's dead in a few days. Disease killed doctors, at least ten of them would die. Clergy too fell. The Reverend of the Episcopal Church, two Roman Catholic priests, a German Reformed Reverend, Presbyterians, Methodists, Quaker preachers also fell victim to the disease. No one, no religion, no class was safe. Dr. Benjamin Rush came upon an idea theory. It appeared that there was no disease in the community of black citizens in Philadelphia, particularly that community that arrived. From the West Indies, and there are hundreds of them. There are also freed slaves and people that were born free in Philadelphia. He thought that maybe, just like there were some theories with malaria, black people may be immune to the disease, that they would be immune to yellow fever. And so he asked the community to help. And they responded. Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, and William Gray were leaders of the African church in Philadelphia. They're among those who formed a volunteer corps to race through the city, caring for patients and doing work like putting patients into coffins and graves that no one at this point would do. Their accounts tell of horrible stories. Parents dying, orphans made all over the city, the dearth of proper burials. These men would all survive. But Dr. Rush's theory was not correct. Indeed. Blacks as well as whites, Englishmen, French, Germans, all the people that would inhabit Philadelphia. All categories of people fell victim to this disease. And 240 from the black community would perish in the months of fever. Oliver Wolcott, member of the Constitutional Convention, said of this crisis, The true character of a man is disclosed, and he shows himself a weak being. In his house, Charles Wilson Peel locked up his family. He removed all pets from the house, which must have killed him. All of his wild birds must have really been brought for him. He fired a musket each day to clean the air, it was thought. He sprinkled his family with vinegar and locked the doors. There was a Lutheran minister, Henry Melmoth, who believed he had found the source of the sickness. Here's what he wrote. The Lord finds pestilence among the transgressors of his law. It is according to Isaiah, the Lord of whom it said, Behold, he maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waffle. Sword, famine, and pestilence are the servants of the Lord. It would not have taken a miracle to turn aside the pestilential fever from Philadelphia. It wanted only the intervention of a trifling. And the lives of thousands preserved. But this was not allowed to intervene. It was God's will to visit the city. And if we ask further why... God's will, the truth will give us the answer. Why has God punished this city in particular? Philadelphia far exceeded the cities in North America in luxury and dissipation among all classes. It was Philadelphia that referred so much on the species of vanity as to erect the largest house of theatrical exhibitions at prodigious expense. It was Philadelphia that imported from luxurious Europe 70 to 80 actors who arrived here at the same time as the fever. When parents had given $300 to obtain a perpetual access to plays, it was Philadelphia that through the summer was so eager to see the rope dancers and other muse exhibited in the city that one could hardly pass along its streets to and fro, with so many going to see them. That's right. The fever was caused by street performers. There were economic effects to this. Merchants and traders had left the city. They couldn't make payment on debts that they had. It means that not only in the city of Philadelphia, but in Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North and South Carolina, and Georgia, including the back settlements, all the western states and territories, they're using Philadelphia as their hub. They're getting goods from there, and they're selling their goods to it. This is all shut down. The economy's in bad shape. People are starting to fear that they're going to have another. You just had a panic in 1791, and people fear there's going to be another one. The national government was in sorry shape when Henry Knox, who was President of Washington, had left. We mentioned Henry Knox, who was running the government, decided to leave after some time. He tries to go to New York City. New York City has quarantine guards stationed to prevent anyone from Philadelphia coming in. So Henry Knox is detained at Elizabeth in New Jersey. Alexander Hamilton, after he recovers from the yellow fever goes up to Albany to visit his father-in-law, get away from the city. He's refused entry. They allow Hamilton's children to come in because they had not had the yellow fever, but ex-patients, not allowed in the city of Albany. It takes some intervention from his father-in-law, and finally Albany agrees if Hamilton and his wife are looked at by Albany physicians, and they're okay, they can come in the city. This is the Treasury Secretary of the United States. You can imagine what was going on all around. And towns were treating the Philadelphia situation differently. At first, the countryside was open. Then there started to be some quarantine guards. But some cities handled it better than others. Apparently, from Kerry's account in Wilmington, Delaware, was very kind to the Philadelphians and, and allowed those in once they realized that it wasn't immediately starting a contagion in their city. Easton, Pennsylvania was another town that apparently were very good to Philadelphians coming in. But not all communities reacted that way. Ebenezer Hazard is a merchant in the city, and he'd once been good friends with Dr. Benjamin Rush. He and Rush both had strong opinions when they got into an argument. Stop talking to each other. But when Hazard came down with the disease, there was no doctor he called first, then Rush. When Rush came and prescribed his cure of mercury and bleeding, Hazard complied on Monday, then on Tuesday. But by Wednesday, he started to feel worse. And he realized why he quarreled with his old friend. He had a low pulse. Rush wanted to bleed him again. Hazard refused. Rush warned him. If you're not bled today, I shall not be surprised to hear that you are dead tomorrow. Hazard called in Dr. Hodge, a different doctor, who prescribed Peruvian bark and wine. See, there were two schools of thoughts about medicine at this time. I mean, they didn't have a lot of knowledge, but generally you could put it in two categories. One was a kind of heroic medicine, Dr. Rush, which involved the purging, the bleeding, and many other things. Uh, Actually, he wasn't the worst of what some of the doctors did. Uh, Another thing that they could do to you is kind of burn you in order to create an infection, because they thought that was good. The other way was using stimulants such as tea, Peruvian bark and wine. Cold liquids were thought to help with this fever, and perhaps they provided a little relief. Wouldn't kill a virus. This is what Dr. Hodge prescribed with more of the stimulation medical theory. Hazard felt better after all this. Then, when he started to see newspaper ads for Dr. Rush's mercurial sweating purge, because Rush was advertising throughout the city, he found him too commercial. Still, Rush believed he was right and wrote to his wife that he had fixed Hazard because the purging and the bleeding laid the foundation for Hazard's cure, which Dr. Hodge just picked up on. It's not a good time for everybody getting along. Governor Mifflin of Pennsylvania blamed the contagion on many, as many did, on new settlers that had arrived from the West Indies, Santo Domingo, Haiti, Dominican Republic now. Matthew Carey, who didn't even stay for the fever, wrote three editions describing the epidemic in his pamphlets, telling heartbreaking stories. However, Carey also criticized the black community, and he talked about the most vilest of the blacks, extorting patients, charging 4 or $5 for nursing when one would suffice. And then he said in his pamphlet, with no specific examples or proof, blacks were detected to be robbing the homes of the sick while they were away. By the fourth edition, he had corrected that and he had corrected the copy to say both white and colored nurses were generally extorting patients in the city, but the damage was already done. Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, and Gray wrote a response in which they refuted the charges of Carey and talked about the members of the African community in town. The Lord was pleased to strengthen us, remove all fear from us, and disposed our hearts to be as useful as possible in offering our services. As for Carey, Jones and Allen speculated that Carey had made more money from the sale of his scraps than a dozen of the greatest extortioners. the disease mocks the power of medicine and travels to remote parts of the city from where it originated. So wrote Dr. Benjamin Rush. And Rush gets some things wrong, especially in the medical side of things. Uh, But one part that he appears to get right is he blames the disease partially on sanitary conditions. And while it wasn't completely caused by germs, it was caused by mosquitoes. He informs Mayor Matthew Clarkson, who stays in the city, and builds a volunteer force. They go around the city, cleaning streets, trying to rid the city of the pestilence. Merchant shipper Stephen Gerard contributes money to build a hospital for those struck with the fever to get them isolated. Bush Hill Hospital is developed out of an old governor's mansion. He pays for it. He uses his own carriage to transport patients. And since this was thought to be contagious to disease, he's risking his life. Newspapers talked of remedies. The American Daily Advertiser talked of remedies like chewing tobacco, eating garlic, firing gunpowder in the air, tar around the collar. We talked about that. Vinegar, wine. One writer in the Daily Advertiser, history only knows A.B., said, the mosquitoes are part of the problem. There's an awful lot of mosquitoes this season and you can kill them by adding vinegar to water where their eggs might be forming. It would take 100 years for an army physician named Walter Reed to prove that, yes, A.B. was right. The disease was spread not by foul air, not by rotting coffee, not even by contact with patients, but by insects. It would be wonderful for this story to end with some great American medical breakthrough that Rush, or maybe one of the other doctors, came up with a solution to this problem, or that all the volunteer efforts worked, or that all the whitewashing and efforts to clean the city of Philadelphia led to a reduction or eradication of the disease. But actually, it was merely the frost. And it wasn't exactly a surprise. In the journals of Elizabeth Drinker and comments of other people, you hear this kind of hoping for the frost. They knew that the hot weather was responsible. They didn't realize it was because of the creation of mosquitoes. But they knew the hot weather was somehow responsible for this hot fever. And they welcomed the frost. October 21st, from the Diary of Elizabeth Drinker. A delightful, cool, frosty morning. Tis generally agreed that the fever is very much abated. And here's what the Federal Gazette says, first November, seventeen ninety three. It gives great pleasure to the editor to hear from every quarter of our city all health prevails in a degree equal to any former period in the history of this country. At the hospital on Bush Hill, For the last 24 hours, only one person died, and he died of the flu. Less than 20 years since independence declared, 10 years since the British evacuation, and just a few years since the signing of the Constitution. America faced a crisis and learned some things about itself. For the first time, large-scale precautions were taken on a collective level to improve the public health. The 1790s were a time of great political friction, it would be wonderful to tell a story where this great disease stopped all that. It did delay it a little, but even in the treatment of yellow fever, there was politics. Alexander Hamilton, for instance, when he came down with the fever, did not consult with Benjamin Rush. Why, Benjamin Rush was a Republican Hamilton, a Federalist. He sought a Federalist doctor who used more of the stimulant methods, the Peruvian bark, the wine, the tea, etc. Later, he would criticize Russia's treatments. He may be right. But one fever had subsided, there would be another fever that would hit the city of Philadelphia the very next year. A political, partisan fever. We'll talk more about that next. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And if you like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.
3: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.